welcome to another episode of the Future Sox Podcast. My name is Mike Rankin. I'll be your host, James Fox, alongside us. James, it's good to talk to you again, sir. I am recovering still from the experience I had the other night, April 14th, 2021. Carlos Rodon's no-hitter against the Cleveland Indians. We're going to celebrate that, talk a little bit about his story, as well as where the White Sox stand currently as we are prepping here at Future Sox for the minor league baseball season to kick off. It's in early May, May 4th to be exact. We'll have more details about that. Lots on tap for today's show, James. Been a little bit, but I have plenty to talk to you about, especially considering Michael Kopech, Andrew Vaughn, they're having significant roles on the big league club this year. We're looking at German Mercedes' success as well, the pitching staff, and Tony Marusa. First things first, though, James, you've been to a perfect game, right? You told me this. Yeah, so I was at Mark Burley's perfect game. Oh, it yeah, was, okay. It was, uh, yeah, it was interesting. I mean, I, I don't know how many people were in the park that day, but it was less than 20,000, and I think I've met 35,000 people that have said that they were at the game. So that's, you know, that's like kind of how it works. <laughs> and you being there, you don't you don't have like a ticket stub, right? They don't, they don't do no. ticket stubs anymore. So, yeah, it's interesting. I always tell a story, like when I was at that game, there was like a group of like probably like 12-year-old girls sitting behind – me and my brother and my parents and there was like one girl who like really understood baseball it was kind of funny and she was like explaining like the game the whole day to like the other girls and she you know she was kind of like oh that's the shortstop he stands between second and third and all those freaking kids like saw a perfect game that day yeah. and i think <laughs> like you know steve stone had said like that was the first perfect game that he had been in the ballpark for like steve stone's done this as long as he has those girls just like end up going to a baseball game someday or one day and they see a perfect game. So I think it's just like kind of shows what like anything can happen at the ballpark any day when you decide to go. Yeah, no, I love it, especially being there in person. It's like a foul ball. You know, you can go to as many games as you can across your lifetime. Sometimes you never get a baseball hit to you or in your direction. That was funny, too, because when I was sitting in the stands, it was cold. It was a it was a Wednesday evening in April, you know, and with the mandate here, no more than 10,000 fans at a guaranteed rate. So they announced 7,700 post-game. Just a mundane Wednesday evening at the ballpark, 7,000 people, and Carlos Rodon throws a no-hitter. And it was one of those uh, success stories that you love to see because of everything Carlos Rodon went through. And last year, the struggles he had in the postseason, he had Tommy John surgery, the severe shoulder injury as well. And he comes back this year, James, I think the story really is, yeah, we could celebrate the no-hitter, but really it's his stuff. It's back, it seems. And we got a taste of this in spring training, mid-90s fastball, hard slider, and I think the most encouraging sign of all is he's mixing in a third pitch in that changeup. And I think it really bodes well for this starting pitching staff because Rodon suddenly is a difference maker. Yeah, so he's a top-10 starting pitcher, in I think, in baseball right now. You know, it's only two starts, but yeah, he looks awesome. This is, you know, this is the guy where, you know, the night that they selected Carlos Rodon, and I remember watching the draft at my parents' house, you know, I think where I still lived at the time because it was like 2014, geez. But like, yeah, like you're thinking there's no way. Like he's going to go one to Houston or he's going to go two to Miami. And then the rumors all came out that Houston was going to take Brady Aiken, the, the prep lefty, and they did. And then at two, you know, you're kind of like, all right, Miami's going to go Rodon here, and then the Sox have, like, a decision to make. Well, when Miami took high school righty Tyler Kolek, I jumped out of my seat. And then you're like, oh, my God, like, are they going to not take Rodon, too, because he wants, like, $6 million or whatever he wants? 
So, you know, I think I, I think this is good to like be on the air, but I, you know, I asked former White Sox scouting director Nick Hostetler and he, you know, he was the assistant director at the time. You know, I asked him what it was like in the draft room that night and he said that that was the quickest that he's ever seen a name like pulled off the board basically. It was when Carlos Rodon was available at three and they were just like, yep, done, took him, called him, and then figured out the rest later. So, you know, this is... This is the guy that people thought that the White Sox were getting. I mean, this was like, you know, one of the best, most advanced college lefties of all time. And, you know, some scouts and scouting directors have even, you know, in the anticipation of, of the draft still to this day, when they're scouting college lefties, you know, they rank them on the Rodon scale. Like, you know, was he as good as Rodon was? That's, you know, that's like kind of what they ask each other sometimes. So, you know, that's like what this guy was expected to be. And then obviously for everybody that's watched his career so far, we know it's been riddled with injuries and, you know, a lot of disappointment and, you know, we've, we've been over some of the, you know, if there's conditioning issues and maybe he hasn't worked as hard as he's needed to, you know, but the stuff looks completely back, you know, better than it's ever been. And I think we've joked a little bit about, you know, the change in pitching coach too, because of that. I mean, the comments, what when when they brought him back and Ethan Katz just like talking about how how Carlos Rodon has figured out that you need to use your lower half to pitch it, it was just kind of hilarious to me and I think we poke fun at it but um, they've actually they've they've honestly found something and I think at this point knock on wood right at least if he remains healthy I think this should be the guy that we're gonna see most of the year well that's the point James is the lower half comment. I, I wanted to bring that up as well because it's important. I remember watching Carlos Rodon in 2020 when he was rehabbing, taking it slow in spring training, right, in Arizona. And I, I was able to sit in the front row during warmups. And there's a group of players just walking in front of me on the foul line. And I saw Carlos Rodon. That man was thick. He was huge in the lower half. I'm talking midsection and legs. Like that guy, like he is such. He has such a strong frame, but it seemed like he was a little oversized at that point in, in the early portion of 2020. And when you talk about the lower half, he turned, he got himself back into shape, like you said, and he turned that lower half into his most valuable weapon. And if, if it's true, right, if that's what indeed is the result of Carlos Rodon's work ethic is we are going to implement your lower half more, that means the fastball is going to stay. So you're not using so much of your top half and your arm strength. It's it's your entire body. The legs are the most important part of a pitcher. And for Ethan Katz to find a way to have Carlos Rodon take advantage of that asset, I, I think it's a game changer. One final note about the Carlos Rodon no-hitter was when I was sitting there in the ninth inning. It's two strikes, two and two counts to Jordan Luplau. He pokes one foul up the left field line. And where I was sitting... You couldn't really tell whether or not it was fair or foul off the bat, and neither did the ballpark, to be quite honest. And once the ball made contact, James, like I know it's been a little bit since you were at the Burley Perfect game, but anytime a ball is poked anywhere or hit relatively hard, I think there's that brief split second where you're thinking, uh-oh, this could end. And when Luplau made contact on that pitch, the entire ballpark went silent in unison. It was actually surreal. Well, and it's Jordan Luplow too, right? He, that's like the only thing that guy can do. I think he's a good defender too, but he murders left-handed pitching. So, you know, you kind of figured like, oh, well, if somebody's going to end it, it's this guy here. So yeah, it was wild. He, he was great that night. I liked 
you know, just like going back and looking at, you know, just some old tweets. I, there was like an old tweet that I found and retweeted where uh, like Keith Law from 2014 had said something about how good Carlos Rodon was. And he said like in there, it said like he was like mother effing like good, like he should go number one, basically. And uh, there's the reply from uh, at James Fox 917 <laughs> in 2014 that said any chance the Houston and the Marlins are stupid enough to let him slide to the White Sox. And, yeah. you know, Keith didn't answer me that night, but um, that's obviously what ended up happening. Yeah, 2014, he gets drafted to the White Sox third overall, makes his debut in 2015, and the rest is history. He's he's looking like he's uh, he's back. He looks like he's all the way back. And that's it started in spring training this year, and it's very encouraging because of, obviously, the value you get in a guy who's 28 years old, left-handed and $3 million this year. So, you know, that's something the White Sox can celebrate. Good on Carlos Rodon. Good on Carlos Rodon for working his way back and, and proving that he still got it. So that's a great story. Another pretty good story, James, that we can talk about as we transition away from the Carlos Rodon no-hitter is that I think the White Sox are going to be just fine. And it's a difficult start. However, the White Sox still have enough pieces, the right foundation and I think with the minor league season coming up we're going to see a little bit more depth play its hand and and prove that they can be useful for the White Sox across 162 game season but I think overall right now James it's been a tough start to the 2021 season with World Series aspirations although there's enough though that we can say let's not panic let's not jump off any bandwagon here because this team still has what it takes to win a World Series what they're six and eight they could easily be eight and six I think they could easily be ten and four now that you know that's not great news I mean it means your bullpen hasn't been as good as you wanted it to be or that it was expected to be but I think your bullpen's also not going to cover 12 to 15 outs consistently in baseball games and they just look they haven't hit enough and I think you know we talked a little bit before the show what did you say they were like 23rd in offense or something you know, I, I think there's these games have been frustrating to watch, but there's a lot of indicators that the White Sox are, in fact, one of the best teams in the American League and one of the best teams in all of baseball. I mean, if you would have told me that the, that they would be second in walks at this point, I would have thought that they'd be running away with the division already because, it, you know, they've had so many guys on base and they've just like left them stranded. If they continue to walk at that high of a clip, they're going to be just fine offensively once the weather warms up. And then on the pitching side, I mean, they're, you know, they're number one in, in Fangraphs war. They're number one in starting pitching ERA, number one in FIP as well. Um, so, you know, their pitching staff is really good and it's probably the strength of their team. So, yeah, I, I think they're fine. I think, you know, everybody kind of has to bounce back after the 60-game season, right, where all those games count for so much more, you know, and while all these games count the same, um, there, there's still time to make up ground, you know, and, and not that there's a bunch of ground that needs to be made up because a lot of teams are struggling, but yeah, I, I would agree with you. I think they're, they're just fine. It just would be nice to see, you know, the starters go a little bit deeper. So then your bullpen can kind of come out and be the strength that they are and then win some of these close games instead of having to blow teams out in your victories. Yeah, so the White Sox currently 23rd in homers, middle of the pack in batting average, middle of the pack in OPS offensively, uh, to your point, James. And going to the pitching side of things, it's interesting that you call it the strength, and I think we were on the same page when it comes to the bullpen being their best asset uh, on the team this year. 
but that starting pitching staff left us with some questions. But you say that the pitching staff is a strength. I think a lot of the time since uh, you know Eloy Jimenez got that injury, I think mine sort of changed a little bit when evaluating this offense because we see the way Tony LaRusse has been implementing lineups and we see Andrew Vaughn not necessarily doing what we expected him to do. Uh, right away. Your Mercedes is a great story. We could talk about that here in a second. But this pitching staff, James, elaborate a little bit more on why you believe that's the strength at this point. Well, so I think Lance Lynn is, is you know, Lance Lynn is exactly what they needed. I mean, he's, you know, he's top 10 in baseball statistically starting pitcher. They have three of the top 10 pitchers in baseball right now statistically. And Lucas Giolito, who's also doing pretty much what we expected. And then the rise of Carlos Rodon, as we've talked about, you know, the question mark so far has just been Dallas Keuchel from the perspective of like, how many innings is he going to throw? But I mean, if Dallas Keuchel's your third or fourth best starter, I mean, that's a, that's a pretty good rotation. And then obviously like the, the jury is still out on, on Dylan Cease. But if that's your, that's your number five with some guys that, you know, we're going to cover more and talk about the rest of the season, like backing him up. I mean, that's, that's pretty good, and the numbers have kind of indicated it. I think they're they're number two or number three in strikeouts per nine, which is a pretty good one. And the pitching staff, I believe, leads all of baseball in Fangraphs WAR. So they've been they've been really good, and I think they were a team coming into the season where you know after last year you kind of thought like that the offense would be the strength, and I agree with you. Like after Eloy went down, we kind of said like this team might have to win differently for a while and I think they're uh they're doing that so far in the you know in the the starting pitching is setting them up to win baseball games they just like actually need to follow up with doing that yeah I think the it's it's so fascinating to see a player taken out of the lineup especially in the four hole and the White Sox mixing and matching at that spot uh, in the batting order you, know, you take away a four-win player a guy who drives in however many runs. And the way the White Sox are built offensively, that's a huge loss. And we were expecting Andrew Vaughn James to be a part of this thing a little bit more so than he has, I would say. And, you know, it's just, I don't know. I want to bring this up to you because I was thinking about Tony La Russa. He's been away from the game for a while. And the White Sox have had some ugly ball games, right? And what is the manager's job? And how does he most impact the game in-game? Bullpen management? lineup creation and then creating obviously the uh, starting rotation and, and trying to figure out your you know the schedule there so far how would you evaluate Tony Larusa? because to me it seems like he's learning not learning because he knows this roster but I feel like he's still working his way through managing it figuring out the guys that he likes in specific situations is he at a disconnect with Rick Hahn at this point because he's not playing guys like Andrew Vaughn in, in the way that maybe Rick Hahn figured he would yeah so I mean like I've heard both and like I don't really have a great like grasp of this right now but I mean you know you hear from people like there's no way that they're at this on the same page and then you hear from others like you know Rick Hahn is in charge of the roster but Tony's in charge of like who plays right but like there's no way that the front office is fine with how Andrew Vaughn's being used like there's just there's no way I mean they spent the entire offseason telling us that this guy is ready to DH and that's why they didn't spend any more money. And then now he's, you know, playing part time in left field. Like it doesn't make any sense. So either like you were wrong before or you're wrong now, right? Or, you know, like your mean has kind of emerged here and he needs his DH at bats, but it's like, 
you know, this is just not the way they've operated. And I think Tony, you know, the old school part in Tony is like, well, this Vaughn kid's got to earn playing time. But like, if that's the case, then he, you know, he's got to go down. And I think he might when, when the Charlotte season starts. I mean, there's a couple other things. Like there was the early season challenge issue that Tony had where they didn't challenge in the seventh. That was a problem. Some of the bullpen usage has been weird. And look, there's always a question as to like, whether that's the manager or the pitching coach and like if they're on the same page or not, you know, the lineup, it, I think there's like, it's like proven that the lineup is what it's like overrated, right? Like the, the lineup, but I think you do want like your best hitters getting the most at bats. So like, you know, when Tony La Russa came over, like I, I assumed that like we weren't going to see Larry Garcia leading off and we weren't going to see Nick Williams and, you know, uh, Billy Hamilton, like as much as we've seen guys like that. And, you know, I think you and I have kind of defended the depth like in the organization, but having to play Nick Williams and Billy Hamilton and some of these other guys and Jake Lamb's playing today as much as they have, like maybe that might prove us wrong a little bit. Or, you know, or it's like they have guys and the manager just chooses to play these vets. And like, I get it. Like you want to keep some of your guys fresh, but like those guys should not be playing regular minutes for a team with world series aspirations. So those, those are just like, you know, some of the issues, I think they'll figure it out. I think, you know, Vaughn has played a little bit more of late. I think, you know, Tony made a nice switch yesterday when he moved Moncada to the three hole instead of four and he flipped a Breu. I think they've, you know, they've kind of moved Evan Marshall out of the eighth inning role that, you know, he struggled a little bit early and he like came in in the sixth to get some tough outs and they've kind of transitioned Cody Hoyer to the eighth. So I do think, you know, they're making, they're making changes and it's like a feeling out process. And while Tony's a hall of fame manager, I mean, he hasn't managed in a long time and the game's a lot different. So he'll probably figure it out, but you know, there's definitely been issues and the people that were apprehensive to the hire, like in the first place, like definitely, they have the right to like still be questioning things right now because it's been kind of weird, I think, through the first 14 games. Well, you, you said it. Yeah, he hasn't done it in a while, and he's still working through some things. And I think through experience, you know, he's going to get a better feel. But also, it's a matter of the White Sox had a very specific plan leading up to this offseason. Then they executed a plan for this particular offseason, thinking that this is a World Series contender. You bring in a manager based on what the owner wanted. And yet here we are talking about managerial decisions. And I think it's just concerning when you take the way the White Sox, like you said, like the way the White Sox approached this offseason and not adding as much as you felt like they could have, obviously hindsight is easy. But when you're talking about these, these big league regulars, right? Those who are being not, I shouldn't say regulars, but big leaguers who are playing in front of specifically Andrew Vaughn, and you can even lump in Zach Collins a little bit. But, man, these are all pieces like, hey, if you're going for a World Series and you're not playing Andrew Vaughn, then something's missing here. And I think it's just worried me that, like you said, if Tony La Russa is going to value big league players over what the White Sox front office had in mind, then what do we do? There's just a disconnect. But I think that's going to take time. And it's interesting, James, I want to explore the point that you said about Andrew Vaughn getting sent down to Charlotte in AAA. What's the value in sending Andrew Vaughn to Charlotte at this point after he's had, you know, a number of plate appearances in the big leagues? I mean, obviously service time comes into play, but my biggest concern at this point with the player Andrew Vaughn is the development of the player of Andrew Vaughn. And where does the development come from? 
Like, I don't know if Tony La Russa trusts Andrew Vaughn. And, like, I think he's been okay and left. He's been better than, you know, I think a lot of people thought. He's better than I thought out there. Like, he needs to play. And, like, I, look, I think he was going to be their DH. But then Yerman did what he did, and they have to play him every day. So, yeah, I mean, if Vaughn's going to play two to three times a week, like, he should be playing two to three times a week in Charlotte, right? He hasn't played any first base because, you know, Jose Abreu has in his contract that he's got to play 162, apparently. So, yeah. uh, I don't know. Like, if, if, if this stays the same, I do think Vaughn should go down for maybe the month of May, and it kind of kills two birds with one stone, right? They didn't manipulate service time to start the year, and then they kind of send him down and do it ultimately anyway. And he, you know, if he goes down and crushes down there, then maybe he comes up and he's, you know, he's better suited to, like, deal right now. I Look, I don't think he's been terrible at the plate, and it's, look, it's 32 plate appearances, so anybody that says that they know anything is, like, crazy obviously he's got a good eye. He's walked a ton, but he's noticeably, you know, he's chased a little bit because I think he's pressing because I think he knows that like he has to perform if he wants to keep playing. And that is not the right way to go about this like that. You know, I mean like, well, how would, how would they have handled Eloy Jimenez's start two years ago if they were like trying to contend while he did it? You know, I mean, he was awful and he turned out fine. Just like Andrew Vaughn. I think I said it, I don't know if I tweeted it or I said it on the podcast the last time, but like I think he's going to be the White Sox three hitter for the next decade. He's obviously not going to be that this year, but you can't like mess him up by yo-yoing him all the time either. So look, I mean, they got a decision to make. Like, does he go to Charlotte and play left? Does he play left and first and DH? Does he stay up in this weird role? I don't know. And obviously, like Billy Hamilton and Adam Engel are going to come off the injured list here soon, and you know I think it would be easy to sell to the fan base, at least for one, like, Hey, this guy's going to go down and play every day. I just, I don't know. I don't really know what the best thing for him is, but I don't think it's, I don't think the best thing for him is how he's like currently been being used by this manager that doesn't really seem to care whether or not he gets at bats or not. Realistically. And Yerman is a part of this thing. Now, if you're having Andrew Vaughn and the investment in Andrew Vaughn and Look, the, the whole service time manipulation thing with, with Vaughn, it, it doesn't really strike me as anything that I should be focusing on because if you're going to figure out that Andrew Vaughn is a mainstay player in the organization, you're going to figure out a way to keep him around before that last year service time even becomes relevant ever at all. So I feel like if the White Sox play their cards right, Andrew Vaughn's going to be a White Sox for or for a long time. But the issue, James, is if he's not playing, like you said, like you got to evaluate this kid. And I think it, it goes back to what we were talking about, the significance of not adding this offseason offensively. If That was a tell. It was like Andrew Vaughn's ready to go and he's going to play in the big leagues. So then play him in the big leagues. I just feel like it would be counterproductive if they wanted to send him down, you know, because he's got so much value that he could bring to this club. And despite his struggles – if you allow him to play, he will work through that struggle. And hey, he's going to show you why it's worth, you know, not going after whoever they wanted to go after in the offseason in terms of an offensive bat. I just, I don't like the idea of sending Andrew Vaughn down. However, if Tony LaRusa isn't going to play him, then it goes back to what I was saying about the development of the player. Then you have to have him play. And then the only way to do that is having him play at Charlotte, which is disappointing. But if that's the case, then that's the case. So that's my two cents on it. Yeah, I mean, I think ideally he's in left field every day. And look, like you want to sit him against Shane Bieber? Fine, 
sit right. him against a tough righty, but he should have played against Tristan McKenzie then, right? Like, that's the issue. The issue is that, like, he played on Sunday, I believe, last week, right, against the lefty, and then they sat him against Tristan McKenzie, and they went with, like, Nick Williams or whoever the hell they played, like, in left field. I don't know. They played some veteran. And then Tuesday night, it was like, oh, well, we're not going to play him against Bieber. It's like, well, what, like, what are we doing here, though, then? Like, it, it doesn't make any sense. Like, he needs to be playing. And it's not like he has to be one of your best hitters. He's down hitting at seven or eight. So, yeah, like, he he just, he, he should not be sitting so that they can play Nick Williams or or one of these other guys. That's kind it's of... It's as simple as that. It's really it doesn't It doesn't that. make any sense. And the way they view... And that's why I think, like, look, I, I don't have, like, Rick Hahn on speed dial or anything, but, like, there's no way that Rick Hahn and Ken Williams are fine with the way that Andrew Vaughn's no been handled after, you know, after they operated the way in which they did, like, thinking that this kid's, like, ready to be, like, their next, like, big contributor out of this group. So I'll just, like, never... I'll never believe that they think this is fine, um, but I think they kind of know that like Tony's here until he like doesn't want to be anymore. So they do have to kind of figure out a way to like work together on it and figure it out. I think uh, it was a couple nights ago. It was Moncada four, Grand or Nick Williams five, Grandall six, yeah. Jake Lamb seven, Danny Mendick yeah. eight, Nick Magical nine, and then Adam Eaton at the top. And, like you talk about a stretch of guys in the lineup that are almost automatic outs, especially a guy in Jake Lamb with limited plate appearances, hasn't seen a lot of big, like live pitching against Shane Bieber. I think it was that night. Yeah. And he, and LaRusso wanted to load up the left-handed uh, batters in the lineup. Well, that's fine. The next day, Nick Williams was DFA'd. It's like, hey, like, come on. Rick Hahn, Carlos Pena, duh. Yeah. Nick Williams. That's like, <laughs> yeah. it reminded me of the scene in Moneyball. It's like, yeah, you can't right. play Nick Williams. Why? Because I DFA'd him. He's not on the it's team. Like, so play Andrew Vaughn. Don't make it any more complicated than that. Well, I think looking back, right, what were two of like the big like danger areas, right, were right field and designated hitter. And the White Sox are totally fine at designated hitter and right field. And some of the questions are in the other spots, which, of course, is the way that this worked out. Right. And then that leads us to Yerman Mercedes and Zach Collins. I wanted to lump in Zach Collins into this because James Zach looks good behind the plate. He, he seems like he's got something working. With the pitching staff these days, he's gotten better with blocking and framing. I think, actually, this was a strength of Collins. I think he's always worked well with pitchers, right? It's just a matter of, of building the repertoire together, working with them more and more. But it feels like Zach Collins has taken the next step, and we're, we're trying to figure out what he can bring offensively. I think we, we understand his profile. He's just got to have it translate more so on paper. But, man, James, like Zach Collins – suddenly has become a valuable backup catcher defensively. Yeah, I think he's always been able to call games. I think pitchers have, like, thrown to him, and I think he, you know, he throws out runners. He has a good throwing arm. The questions were, like, everything else defensively, right? Like, he he wasn't a great framer. Lots of pass balls, you know, lots of, like, perceived laziness, right? Like, it's not laziness, but he's so clunky that it's like, yeah, this guy can't catch, basically. And then the offensive profile is what it is. Like, I, I don't know if he's ever going to hit lefties. I don't know if he's ever going to be given the opportunity to. I guess my question with his offensive profile is, like, does it work playing part-time? And we're going to find that out, right? Like, I think he's the type that might need a ton of at-bats, and he's just not. He's not going to get them. I mean, you can't. You can't do that when you have Yasmani Grandal on your team. So I think, like, ideally for Zach Collins, like, the person and the player, like, he would be – getting 450 plate appearances with like the pirates right now, but that's just kind of not, you know, what he's going to be doing. And I think 
you know, as the backup catcher here. Like, I think he's been fine. I think he's going to catch Cease pretty much every time through. I don't know if he's going to catch Rodon from now on too, but he, you know, he did a pretty good job with him the other night. So, you know, hopefully he improves a little bit off. He he's looked a little bit rough offensively after a really good spring, but yeah. it's so it's like just not enough at bats to really make any declarations. And he, uh, you know, he's always gotten on base and he's always hit for power. So, you know, he's like salvaging a career a little bit. So that was, that was good the other night for people that, you know, have always like believed in, Zach Collins and there were you know there were some that always said that he could catch and you know one one of them being former scouting director Nick Hostetler who was panned for that pick you know and I think he famously said that he would take Zach he would have taken Zach Collins 1-1 if he had it which is you know a bit questionable but he said it so yeah so we'll see going forward but uh at least like Collins in the process of like carving out a major league career it seems like at least as a backup catcher yes yeah and for for Hostetler it just reiterates his confidence in the player and in that pick so you're seeing it translate on the field and I I agree with you it's really good to see the way Zach Collins behind the plate uh, works with his pitcher and (laughs) just make him a personal catcher right James McCann did it and suddenly better than Yasmani Grandal so all right, let's move on to your Mercedes because this player suddenly, I guess not so suddenly for those who've been paying attention to White Sox minor league atmospheres, is uh, boy, really taking the league by storm, coming up and just dominating across the first week of the season, hitting over 500. Now he's still maintaining a pretty healthy batting average and he's hitting for power. It's just, what is it about your Mercedes approach at the plate and I guess his mechanics and his ability as a hitter to, to put forth such production across his uh, early major league career, James. So I think like there, there have been a lot of like your mean fans, right? We've seen it. Like both of us run the future socks, Twitter account occasionally and you know, our own and stuff like that. And there's, there's Yerman fans out there. And even all those people in their wildest dreams, like didn't see this start coming. Right. Like, I, look, I thought he could hit, in the big leagues, I thought, you know, in a bench role, fine, but it's tough, man. It's tough when you, you got a 26 man roster and he can't really play a position. So like, I'm not surprised that it's taken him this long, but good on him that like he he's hit like this. And he's basically, I mean, the thing, he's kind of a throwback player in a way. Cause like, I think you, you see him load up to just like hit giant bombs and you think like, man, this is like old school, like softball slugger. That's like going to be susceptible, but then he completely changes up his swing and his approach like with two strikes and he just like is fine poking a ball to right field that's thrown out on the outer half. So yeah, I mean, if he keeps doing that, like he's going to be playing in the big leagues for a long time. He's already 28. I think we've had plenty of reasons for like not ranking him on like a top 30 prospect list. Right. Like I think I said once, like I don't rank 27 year old DHs, but, and maybe that's harsh, but that, you know, like it doesn't mean that he can't help the big league team and he has so far. I mean, he's been, one of the best stories in baseball. It's a scouting story. And I always kind of love that. It's a, you know, it's a guy that White Sox minor league, uh, while he's head of pro scouting and he's like an analytics type guy, Dan Fabian, you know, the, the computer shot out like, yeah, this guy is good. And the scouts liked him too. And they took him in minor league phase of rule five. Everybody's heard that story now. And he's in the big leagues, like helping a team that's trying to win a division. So yeah, it's been awesome. He's very likable, obviously. Yeah. So we'll see We'll see how far it goes. I mean, I think, you know, I've seen some worry, like, what do you do with, what do you do with Eloy Jimenez when you have Eloy Vaughn and, and Mercedes? And I would simply say, like, 
no team has ever had too many good players and they'll figure it out. And we should probably just like not worry about that till later. Like, I hope they have that problem. Um, but you know, I think Mercedes has earned himself more time and we're going to see him play on most days. I would imagine. I, I don't know how you could take him out of the lineup right now. And I don't, I don't really think they will Yeah, talk about a fun story. No, you're right. And I think, uh, who is it? JJ Cooper that we talked to when he mentioned, he's like, I just want to see your Mercedes. Yeah. <laughs> so JJ Cooper notoriously like, so he's like the, the rule five like guy, right? Like, so JJ Cooper like makes a huge deal out of the rule five draft. It's like one of his favorite like niche things, you know? So, you know, and then he, he like that day, I think that they took him back in 2017 had a tweet like, you know, this guy can really hit, like, I like this guy, blah, you know, whatever. And then he, goes to Winston-Salem and rakes and goes to double A and rakes and goes to triple A and rakes. And we saw it like he was awesome everywhere he went, you know, and it's like, this guy doesn't have a defensive position, but he's like been ridiculous offensively. And then they protected him in his rule five year in 2019 for the major league rule five. And once the White Sox protected him, it was kind of like, Oh, okay. So like, that's like the first hint that he had some major league value because if they protected him, they thought there was a decent chance that somebody would take him. You know, and then he didn't get a shot really last year, and he finally got his shot this year, and he is rewarding them and I guess everybody else that kind of believed in your mean Mercedes fever. So yeah, it's a it's a fun story. It's <laughs> it's pretty cool. Yeah, he spent time in uh, the independent leagues, didn't he? I, I, yeah, so he yeah, did play in the yeah. Pecos League early in his career. Yeah, I mean it's the the journey of baseball, and for your Mercedes, it's it's the ultimate uh, dedication story. What about Michael Kopech. What about his role moving forward, James? A couple more things here and we'll wrap up this podcast. I just, I'm thinking about the way that Michael Kopech should be used the rest of the season. I, I love the way that he's looked out of the pen. I think he took it very seriously in spring training to prep himself to come out of the pen. Uh, it's a different mindset. And when you're sitting in the pen throughout a ball game, you get up to warm up, you go into the game, you get one out, you sit down, you go back out there it's not necessarily the same as obviously starting a ball game, but I feel like he's just much better off as a starter, right? I think, I think now let's just do it. Let's commit to Michael Kopech as a starter. Am I premature in saying this? I don't think you're premature. No, I think he's a starter. I think he's in their rotation as early as next season, maybe at some point this season, if something happens, I just, you know, we've talked about the innings limit and the restrictions on him. I don't know what that number is. If I knew what that number is, you know, I'd be able to answer a lot better. Is it 100 innings? Is it 120 innings? Is it under 100? Because, I mean, it seems like they could get him close to 100 pitching like this, right? And then maybe, like, he's the opener in a doubleheader at some point where he goes a few innings, you know, and you get him there at this point, like, could, could they transition him right to the rotation right now and have him be six innings a start and like then in the playoffs? Like, no, I don't, I don't think so. So I think that's why they're using him the way they are, but yeah, he looks, he looks awesome. I mean, he's been, you know, I think if you just look at reliever stats, he's been one of the best ones in baseball. He's obviously not a reliever long-term. So, but if you told me that, you know, Michael Kopech is starting game three of like the AL division series. Like, yeah, I, I could see that like this year. I, I think part of the reason why they're treating him the way they're treating him is so that they don't have to shut him down if they have like a, a playoff run. So yeah, I think watching his role over the course of the year is going to be fascinating just because, you know, he's, he's definitely not like some setup man or something, even though he would be awesome at it. This is a starting pitcher 
that's throwing four pitches out of a big league bullpen and pitching multiple innings like every time that he throws. And, you know, I think he's he's one of the like most exciting things, one, one you know, one of the most exciting parts of the season so far, I would say. And he looks uh, the way that I think we kind of expected him to, like as long as he was healthy. I think the only thing I needed to know was if Michael Kopech was healthy. And if he was, then I thought he'd kind of look like this because he's awesome. Right. I just, I'm so excited for Michael Kopech. I think you're right, though, in saying, I think it's so important to consider the innings limit all season long, how the White Sox want to manage that. And if that means using him strictly out of the pen this year to get him to September and early October, then that has to be the case, right? Because you just, you can't sacrifice two months of the season late for two months of the season in, say, June or July. Uh, in, in terms of using him as a starter and like reaping those innings early, right? Because like Jonathan Stever, is he the next guy up? If the White Sox need a starting pitcher, I need Randall Lopez is a part of this conversation as well. But are the White Sox looking past Kopech is what I'm trying to say in terms of needing a starter if necessary. Yeah, I mean, it kind of seems like it. And I think like, you know, we'll see like once this podcast is posted, like what it looks like. I mean, you know, as we're recording it's it's the fourth inning of the first game of the double header and Jonathan Stever was called up tonight and and the, the question is like you know he could start but I think Tony LaRusa kind of said like they could go a different direction as well so Stever was with the team on the taxi squad so he's he's the guy but I think it's telling that that they would consider going to Jonathan Stever you know who hasn't really pitched higher than high A and then you know his two starts last year over Ronaldo Lopez at this point I think that's a little bit, you know, telling that they have more trust in Stever there. And then the the other guy to watch is Jimmy Lambert, who, you know, I was told is fine, but he's in Arizona because he's like ramping up as well after, you know, some of the injuries he's had last year. And the, the club's very optimistic with Jimmy Lambert to the point where, you know, I think he could kind of serve in the role that Kolpak is serving in now, like closer to midseason. He's in Arizona. I'm not sure he's going to an affiliate right away. Um, you know, and it's not, he's just like another guy on like a strict innings limit where it doesn't really serve him any purpose to like be in Schaumburg right now. But since he's not in Schaumburg, he's not really an option to come up and help the big league team yet. But I do think he factors in for sure, like down the stretch or in the second half um, in some sort of role, whether that's as like the next starter in or as just like kind of a long man out of the bullpen. That's a great nugget on Jimmy Lambert. Yeah, I got to keep an eye on him. Keep him in mind. We're getting set for minor league baseball. And the alternate site, like you mentioned, in terms of Stever traveling with the team uh, on the taxi squad, I mean, this when they announced the alt site, James, it seemed like it was the Charlotte Knights roster. And Charlotte's coming up in, uh, in May. May 4th is opening day for the Knights. And that actually kicks off all of minor league baseball. So here at Future Sox, we are prepping for the start of minor league baseball. Close to a full season, we'll absolutely take it. Really looking forward to bringing you minor league baseball coverage all season long. But, I mean, this is what we're talking about now, James. Like, here at Future Sox, that's what we're prepping for. And with the alternate site, and that right, things are going to start to get back to normal here soon. I just, I'm really looking forward to the way that baseball is going to transition from what we've been used to over the last year plus in a taxi squad to, okay, we're going to send guys down to affiliates again. Yeah, I can't wait. And I think you're right. I think the, you know, the alternate site, it's a lot of like vets that could be easily called up, right? I mean, you look at some of the arms, it's like an Alex McCray and 
guys like that. And then, you know, Nick Williams is there and I think Tim Beckham is there and guys like that. So like, you know, the White Sox under Chris Getz have typically had lots of guys like that in Charlotte. And I think, you know, you sell out baseball games in Charlotte, you know, because you, you, you top prospects fly through there too, but you do have a lot of vets like that that are used to playing baseball games. So that, you know, if you look at the alternate site roster, I would imagine that's, uh, that's the Charlotte Knights to start your season. And then everybody else is currently in Arizona. And I think, you know, our next podcast and the ones after that, we'll kind of do some previews and talk about, you know, who's expected at each level. Um, the White Sox minor league players are currently working out in Arizona playing games. So it's right around the corner and, you yep. know, we can transition back to kind of what we're used to doing instead of branching out so much to the big league team. But, you know, we're, we're both fans, so it's fine. And there are a lot of guys that we have covered or guys that are still technically current prospects on this big league team. So that does make it a little bit easier for what we do here. Yeah, it gives us reason to kind of be a part of this conversation, right? The Charlotte team's going to be interesting. And then you talk about in Kannapolis, some of these full season affiliates, even Winston-Salem, you can extend it there too. I mean, we're starting to see, you know, the young high school pitchers that we can assume take the mound consistently as professionals. Cade McClure going in in Charlotte that we can assume uh, might have an impact moving forward. I mean, there are a lot of names that we can keep an eye on and mention here, and we're going to do that coming up. So stay tuned to futuresocks.com uh, for all of it. But I'm, yeah, I, I'm really excited, James. I think you said it, said it very well. Uh, I'm trying to think if there's anything left that we missed that we should cover outside. Oh, we, we, maybe a quick shout out to Garrett Crochet. Any concern there about Garrett Crochet and his start uh, to 2021? Yeah, so I've seen some people with concerns. I mean, look, the velocity is down. I, I kind of think that it's by design, just, you know, trying to, I mean, they got to get him innings, man. He's got to throw like 70, 75, 80 innings, like if they think that he's going to start at some point. And I, you know, I think they're committed to him starting at some point. And I think like the more that I've seen him, I actually like am more optimistic that he can start, right? Because like he's not just going to come in and pump 100 pitching as often as he's going to pitch. And if he's not coming in pumping 100, he's not as effective like as a bullpen guy, in my opinion. So, you know, I, I, I'm curious to see like how his role shifts, like if it shifts at all. Um, they've used him kind of as like a guy in the back third of the game, which is a little different than how they've used Michael Kopech. Um, he's had some issues defending the position, which, you know, probably something that you you usually would work on in the minor leagues. So I'm not super concerned with him, but he's obviously, yeah, I mean, he's, he's not the same. I don't think we know like the role that he's going to play. Um, but I do think, I think he's a starting pitcher long-term and look, when he's starting, he's probably going to be 95 to 97 more times than not. So, you know, the, the hundred from last year was a, was a fun story, but that's, that's not going to be Garrett Crochet, you know, in whatever it ends up, 50 relief appearances in, in 2021. It's just not realistic for him to come in and pump 100 like every time he throws. So I don't think it's anything injury related, but if he's, you know, not quite as good, um, I think it's like understandably because he's not throwing 100 every time. Well, yeah, I mean, that's the story is he came up and threw 100 because he was a junior in college who threw only four innings at that rank, right, at the Division One rank at Tennessee, and then had all of this time to develop. But without a, a college baseball season, without a minor league season, the White Sox threw him right in the fire 
at the alternate site in Schaumburg. And like, like you said, I mean, he was in shape, completely fresh and ready to throw a hundred. I mean, this is a young arm who just went out healthy and pumped. And it's a little different now when you go through a full off season and then a spring training, and then the expectations of being a part of a big league club for 162, you got to temper that a little bit, bring it down a notch. And that's exactly what's happening. I think uh, in Carol Crochet's case, when you, when you talk about the 95, 97, he's doing that on purpose. He wants to stay in the league for the full season. So that's, that's where we're at right now. As we lead into the minor league baseball season, starting May 4th. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of the future Sox podcast. And thanks so much for your support across all of the years, not just this year and last, but all of the years here at Future Sox. We are going to do our best to continue to provide the best White Sox minor league coverage all in one place. So appreciate you as always. James, thanks so much for jumping on. This was fun. Yeah, it was good to finally get back on. We'll talk again soon. For James Fox, my name is Mike Rankin. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the Future Sox podcast. Check us out on Anchor as well as on Spotify and iTunes. Go to futuresox.com to check out everything that we have to offer. We'll talk to you all next time.